I am sitting in a room different from the one you are in now. I am recording the sound of my speaking voice and I am going to play it back into the room again and again until the resonant frequencies of the room reinforce themselves so that any semblance of my speech with perhaps the exception of rhythm is destroyed. What you will hear then are the natural resonant frequencies of the room articulated by speech. I regard this activity not so much as a demonstration of a physical fact, but more as a way to smooth out any irregularities my speech might have. I am sitting in a room different from the one you are in now. I am recording the sound of my speaking voice. I think we've all had the experience of singing in the shower, and we know that it's a, a great place to sing because, at least to ourselves, uh, we, we sound so fantastic. Everybody, when singing in the shower, is a Luciano Pavarotti or a Renee Fleming, at least in their own mind. And that's because the bathroom is such a reverberant room. But every room has its reverberant frequency. If you can just find it and know what it is, it's less obvious in other rooms. We've been listening to Alvin Lussier recite his famous 1969 piece, I Am Sitting in a Room, in which he does exactly that, find the resonant frequency of the room in which he's sitting. Welcome to Relevant Tones. I'm Seth Bosted, and today I'm featuring composers who step outside of the system, so to speak, who, who start over and look for another way to, uh, to express themselves than the traditional art of music notation. When I go back to Lucier's I Am Sitting in a Room, we're going to move the piece up a little bit. What he's doing is recording himself reading this text and playing it back in the room in which he is sitting. And then he's uh, recording that and playing that back and repeating the process over and over again until the room's resonant frequency begins to emerge. And uh, we hear him speaking in a normal room, and then it sounds like maybe he's in the shower. Um, and then it sounds like maybe he's in a well or someplace. And then it gets so reverberant that it sounds like there's some electronic processing going on. But there isn't. Uh, this is simply the, the act of repeating this recording in the room. And what we're hearing is the room's own reverberant frequency. Let's listen to the piece about halfway through. sound of his voice is getting increasingly reverberant, and it does sound like electronic processes. Let's move the piece on to the end when the reverberation of the room is actually taking over, and that's all that we hear.
think it's so fascinating. We know that under a dome or in a so-called echo chamber, it's easy to hear that phenomenon. But the idea that every room that we're in has that capability and the way that Lucier has shined a spotlight on that in his piece, I Am Sitting in a Room, I just think it's, it's an incredibly fascinating concept. Well, Lucier is popping up on programs really all over the place lately. In fact, he read his I Am Sitting in a Room on the Bang on a Can Marathon in June, and I had the really good fortune to talk to him about, about his ideas and about his philosophy of music. I studied classical music. I went to Rome on a Fulbright. I heard a lot of contemporary European music. I came home and I decided it wasn't for me. It wasn't my music, uh, even though it was wonderful. If I imitated it, I'd be imitating something. So I waited until I discovered something. I think basically, I don't want I don't want to sound like a scientist because I'm not very good at science, but acoustics and the natural characteristics of sound waves interest me. Not language, not a um, atonal or tonal musical language, but exploring uh, sonic phenomena. I'm really interested in the natural characteristics of sound in the s- sound waves. Well, as I said at the beginning of the show, I am featuring composers who start over, so to speak, who, uh, who want to start fresh and uh, you know, proceed to make music with no preset ideas of, of limitations or value judgments. This happens in all human endeavors. It happens in visual art, theater, philosophy, you name it. It's a kind of a Zen idea of the beginner's mind, starting from scratch. And, uh, you know, with, with uh, say, Albert Einstein, for example, if he had uh, simply proceeded from Newtonian physics, we would never have gotten to our, our new understanding of, of relativity. And, you know, sometimes it leads to something wonderful like that. It revolutionizes the way that we think about the world, and sometimes it doesn't lead anywhere. But it's important to ask those questions. Another composer who uh, was pretty good at starting from scratch is James Tenney, and he's another guy like Lucier who seems to be popping up on programs a lot lately. I want to feature a piece of his called Cellogram. This is a really fascinating piece. Um, The score itself is interesting. It's a graphical score. So uh, he shows the pitches that he wants the performer to play. And then the graphic element is uh, basically it's a chart over time, and it goes up and down. It rises and falls as the pitches rise and fall in the piece. So he's got a fixed pitch and then another pitch that, um, that goes away from it and back to it again to a unison. But the fixed pitch itself changes over time as well. I have William Jason Rainovich actually performing James Tenney's Cellogram live in the uh, WFMT Levin studio. Let's have a listen.
We've just heard William Jason Rainovich of the Maverick Ensemble performing Chelogram by James Tenney live here in the Levin studio. It's a fascinating piece in the way that, uh, that, that he zones in on just one element of music. Again, it's got a very different idea of development than, say, the I am sitting in a room. And this is something that composers are, are interested in. So you might have a visual artist who's interested in, in redefining what a, what a painting is. Well, same thing with a, a musician. We can redefine what development is. Instead of developing a theme, we can develop a concept, or we can develop um, a sound, or a sound effect, or even an intervallic relationship. When we think of composers who start from scratch, who, who sort of redefine what music is, I think the name that comes up most often is John Cage. But even before Cage, there were composers who were doing this. Um, I think of George Antile, I think of Henry Cowell, uh, Lou Harrison, Colin McPhee. And I think I'd rather shine a spotlight on uh, what they were doing, because although they very much deserve to be known, they're certainly lesser known than John Cage. Let's turn to Lou Harrison. Um, this is a guy who is very interested in, uh, in breaking boundaries and, and, and finding different sounds. Um, and what he did in his case was to turn to other cultures, uh, specifically the culture of Bali and the Gamelan. We're going to listen to a piece of his called Cornish Lankaran uh, for the Gamelan. And if you don't know much about Gamelan, then uh, let me tell you what you're going to hear. You're going to hear a lot of gongs and bells that are tuned to what we might consider microtonal tunings. They have a different scale than what we think of here in the Western world. And the music is cyclical in nature, meaning that um, you don't have an A section that goes to a B section. It's not like our Western development. Um, it's meant to just go round and round and go on as long as it needs to. And each player is playing a different rhythm. So what you have is a series of different interlocking rhythmic patterns. Let's have a listen to Cornish Lankaran by Lou Harrison.
We just heard a Cornish Lankaran by Lou Harrison. And if you're wondering where the word Cornish comes from in a piece that's written for the Balinese Gamelan, uh, it's because it was named for the Cornish College of Seattle. So there's a composer who's uh, very interested in the uh, Gamelan and looking to the East and other cultures for, uh, for new sounds. Another composer, though, even before Harrison, who was very interested in the Gamelan, is Colin McPhee. And I have a very interesting piece by him that's called Tabu Tabuhan. And what I think is very interesting about this piece is that it doesn't necessarily incorporate so many gamelan instruments themselves. It's written for Western instruments, but it very much uses those syncopated rhythms and that idea of interlocking rhythmic textures and the sort of overall cyclic nature. We're going to listen to the first movement, which is called ostinatos. And of course, an ostinato itself is a repeating pattern. Let's have a listen then to Howard Hansen conduct the Eastman Rochester Orchestra, performing ostinatos by Colin McPhee.
what a fantastic piece. If you heard that on a new music concert today and thought it was by a living composer, you would probably think to yourself, oh, it's a neo-minimalist piece, and you could be forgiven for thinking that. But it was actually composed in 1936. Uh, we heard Ostinatos from Tabu Tabuhan by Colin McPhee, conducted by Howard Hansen and the Eastman Rochester Orchestra. I just think it's a fantastic piece. Incredible, 1936, and yet it sounds so fresh. It doesn't sound dated whatsoever. Um, it sounds amazingly vital. And you can really hear his influences there. Another example of a composer looking for, for new sounds and inspiration. So we've heard so far a composer who was interested in how we perceive sound and um, kind of manipulating what we hear, the resonance of a room. Then we heard Tenny, um, who's very interested in a, a certain element of music, like maybe just the dynamics or an interval. And then we um, listen to composers who look to other cultures for inspiration and new sounds. I'm going to turn now to a composer who um, didn't do any of that. Um, he created his own instruments. He's a very fascinating guy named Harry Parch. Um, he lived a lot of his life as a hobo. And, uh, you know, just quickly, a hobo is, should not be confused with a bum. <laughs> a hobo lives his life the way that he wants to. And in, in the 30s and 40s, would crisscross the country on trains. And uh, they weren't necessarily broke. They weren't necessarily panhandlers. Um, but they did like to travel, did have restless spirits. And certainly Harry Parch had a very restless spirit. And traveling across the country as a hobo, he saw a lot of different things. And he certainly had... Um, access to an awful lot of uh, junk <laughs> and things that he could repurpose um, as instruments. And so that's what he did. And he created these very elaborate instruments that combined elements of strings and, and percussion and, and um, all kinds of things to create these sounds that he wanted to hear. Let's have a listen to some of these sounds that he manufactured. We're going to listen to a part of a disc called Delusion of the Fury. This is Harry Parch.
We just heard part of a really wonderful CD called Delusion of the Fury, featuring music of Harry Parch. And most of what we heard there um, is played on instruments that were designed by Parch. And so you've got uh, definitely, there's very traditional elements like strings and, and percussion and things, but um, a lot of them are actually found objects from his days as a hobo. So it's really quite an interesting collection of sounds that we get there. Well, after a short break, we're going to move to a composer in the modern era who also works with found objects. You're listening to Relevant Tones, a show that features the music of contemporary composers. On today's program, we're featuring composers who start fresh, who look for alternate means of inspiration for their music. You can find us online at www.relevanttones.com or on Facebook. I'm going to turn now to a composer in our own era, and that's Christopher Prising, another composer who's really interested in found objects and repurposing them in his musical compositions. When I talked to Chris, he told me a really interesting story about finding a junky old piano in an abandoned house and how it made its way into his latest piece. You hear a lot of banging. Okay. And um, the, I think some of the sounds, I have to admit that I'm not positive of where they come from because I collect a lot of sounds. Mm-hmm. And some of the sounds may have been in other pieces, and so then I, I borrow from myself. But... I think a lot of the banging sounds were originally recorded in an abandoned building or more than one abandoned buildings. Uh, I like to go into old houses or apartments or whatever I can get into with a uh, field recorder, and so I'll use those as starting points and uh, then manipulate the sounds and uh, transpose them and combine them and things like that. Very prominently, you will hear a piano, which was found in a in a house at the side of a, a highway when I was um, doing an artist residency in Virginia. And it was a beautiful instrument to me. The house was incredible. The colors were just beautiful. I was there with a photographer, and she was snapping pictures. And if you listen closely, you'll hear the, oh, the wow. camera okay. snapping <laughs> away as well. But I was plunking away on the piano, and, um, of course, the keys hardly worked, and so Mm -hmm. I had to play a key and then pull up the hammer and then play it again or play another key. Mm -hmm. I did some banging on the the pedal, and so if you hit the pedal quickly and release it, you get a bunch of the hammers to move, and they kind of bounce around, and so you hear some sounds like that. Composer Christopher Prising talking about the way that he works and uh, especially a new piece of his called Pales. And we're going to listen to a little bit of that now performed live for us by clarinetist Andrea DiOrio. And we're going to hear the clarinet part. And then about halfway through, we're going to hear the electronic part that he was describing kick in. Let's have a listen. Thank you. 
Andrew DiOrio performing the clarinet part live for Pales by composer Christopher Prising, another piece to incorporate found objects. I want to feature now a very uh, interesting piece by composer Stephen Mackey, and uh, I had the good fortune to hear him talk about this piece some years ago when it was performed at a Music Now concert. And what he said was that uh, he was interested, he was listening to indigenous music, uh, African music, for example, and he was thinking to himself, wow, this is so amazing. It's so rhythmically complex. And, and how do they come up with it? And then he answered his own question. Of course, they, they don't come up with it. It's not like they sit around and, and, and think about uh, what they're going to, the next direction that their indigenous music is going to take. It just arises spontaneously from the culture. This is the way that they hear. These are the rhythms that they feel. And uh, he thought it might be interesting to invent a culture. And what would their indigenous music sound like? <laughs> and so that's exactly what he did. So we're going to hear a piece called Indigenous Instruments. We're going to hear Eighth Blackbird perform it. And this is exactly what Mackey has done. He's imagined what this non-existent tribe, what their music might sound like.
We just listened to Indigenous Instruments by Stephen Mackey, performed by 8th Blackbird. 
I'm just going to read one sentence from the program notes because I love it. It says, indigenous instruments is vernacular music from a culture that doesn't exist. <laughs> so as I said before we heard the piece, what Mackie had done is imagine a uh, culture and what their music might sound like. And he has to imagine, too, what kind of instruments they would be playing. And so to get some of those effects, he, uh, he has the violin detuned. The clarinet does a lot of its sliding around, um, a, lot, a lot of glissandos. Very rarely is it on one pitch, so we get this microtonal element to it. The piano is prepared. Um, it's functioning more or less as a percussion instrument there. So it would be some sort of imaginary indigenous percussion instrument. The first movement of Indigenous Instruments by Stephen Mackey, performed by Eighth Blackbird. Well, on today's program, I've really shined a spotlight on this idea of composers who are uh, challenging the system, so to speak, and really starting from scratch and uh, trying to proceed without any preset limits or notions of, of what music is. But it really is something that permeates relevant tones in general, because uh, this is new music. This is creativity. In fact, I think it's a hallmark of the human race itself, this innate drive to create something new. So it's definitely something that I'll return to again and again on the program. But until then, keep your eyes and ears open, because this creativity is all around us. We have just a little bit more time, so I want to return to that composer, Colin McPhee, who wrote that wonderful piece in 1936, because I think it very much exemplifies this idea. It still sounds so fresh today. We're going to go out tonight with a third movement of Tabu Tabuham by Colin McPhee.
Relevant Tones is produced by Jesse McWhorters at WFMT, with special thanks to Molly Hunt and Connor Mackey. For more information about the program and the artists we featured, you can find us on Facebook or visit our website at relevanttones.com. Relevant Tones is made possible by the generous support of Grosvenor Capital Management, Carol Joins, and Abby O'Neill, an anonymous donor and the listener supporters of WFMT. I'm your host, Seth Bosted, and thank you very much for listening.